in your Bibles, you may turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Page 976, if you're using a pew Bible. Here's what we've seen so far in the first sentence that Paul wrote in Greek in Ephesians chapter 2. Briefly summarized, it looks like this. Our sinful state and condition is far worse than we could have ever imagined. And he describes that sinful state and condition in the first three verses. It starts off, and you were dead. So however down you are on yourself, it's worse than you could possibly imagine. Spurgeon actually has a terrific quote, which I didn't have in my notes, so I shouldn't try to remember that now. But uh, I know it's, it's responding to criticism that he faced because Spurgeon was so well known, and so for a variety of reasons, different people attacked him or criticized him. And I know uh, his reaction to that was, in fact, I'm a worse sinner than you imagine. Like, he didn't defend himself, I'm not that bad, you know, I'm better than that. He's like, actually, what you're saying, it's worse than that. And that's what Ephesians, the first three verses, established. Then, verses 4, 5, and 6, maybe 7 too, the power of God's overcoming grace is far greater than what we could have ever dreamed. So in verses 4 to 7, it starts off, but God. And then the main verb, or the first big verb, is he made us alive. So you were dead, but God made us alive. Today we're going to do the start of verses 8 to 10. Initially I thought we'd do all three verses, but we'll break it up. We'll do 8 and 9 this week, and then we'll do uh, verse 10 next week, and maybe then some. It's hard to say because I'm not that far yet. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to kind of summarize this great contrast in that sentence, like the deadness and the aliveness. He wants to clear, he knows it's a stark contrast. It's shocking. It's shocking how dead we are. It's also shocking how much God has done, this aliveness. And so Paul wants to make sure we get it and we don't have any misunderstandings because, as C.S. Lewis has said, and it's something that I find true commonly, is that there are always two ditches, or mostly always two ditches you can fall in. And so what happens if is I can see the ditch over there, and I can be like, ha, those people are so wrong, they're in the ditch, and I'm in the opposite ditch. So it's really hard uh, in avoiding one error not to fall into the opposite error. And so there are two errors regarding this teaching in those first seven verses, and Paul wants to make sure the church avoids both errors. So it looks something like this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you rightly understand that, you will avoid an error. But Paul wants you to avoid the second error on the other side, which reads like this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Andrew McLaren, who is uh, this Baptist I'm kind of enamored with, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, one reason why his sermons are about half as long as Spurgeon's. So he's a lot easier to read in that they're shorter. But he preached a message on verses 8 to 10, and he said, the sad thing is about verses 8 to 10 is it, it makes people think that they can, well, you've got these three main words. You've got grace, 
saved in faith. And because of those three words, which are central to the Christianity, central to the Bible, and everybody has some understanding of those words, it's easy to kind of lull yourself into sleep. And, and the way he puts it is, I'm afraid that some people, when they read such a text, will shrug the shoulders of weariness and think that they are in for a dreary sermon. And it's possible this may wind up being a dreary sermon, but it's not dreary because the text is familiar. It's not dreary because of the grace and the idea of being saved and the idea of faith. That's not where any dreariness could possibly lie. He talks about there had to have been a time in your life where those truths just erupted into a red-hot coal. But over time, they become dull. And they lose their hotness because we become so familiar with the verses, so familiar with the terms. We sing about them. We, we employ those terms in our prayer. Uh, we read about them in Scripture. And so we just kind of get lulled into thinking there's really nothing to learn here. This is a starter sermon. And Daniel McLaren says, that could hardly be the case. There's more here than what you imagine. So it's kind of like football. The word football is a term, it's a word that's bannered about, and it means different things to different people. In American, we would talk about football. We're talking about what most of the world calls American football. Because most of the rest of the world, when they're talking about football, they're talking about what we call soccer. But it's the same word. But if you're down under in Australia, their idea of football is not like anybody else's. It's the most bizarre game you could possibly imagine. I haven't figured it out. The Applebee's have, and they love it. They would swear by it. But football is a term that means different things to different people. Anybody that associates, whether it's a, a, an individual who identifies as a Christian, or a church that identifies under the umbrella of Christianity, or a Christian organization, they all use those words. They all talk about grace. They all talk about faith. They talk about salvation, but they don't always mean the same thing. The Roman Catholic tradition talks about grace, but let me assure you, it's not the grace I think that Paul's talking about when he writes Romans and Galatians. But they do use the word. Uh, different traditions use those words with a variety of meanings. And so Paul, in using these words, it's worth pausing to understand rightly how these three words have become so key and central to the Christian faith. Let's start off with how, how Paul starts off. For by grace you have been saved. We talked about being saved last week a little bit. So this is a little more familiar, and then at least you know where I'm coming from based upon last week. When you hear the word saved, what you should think of as a synonym is not the word forgiveness, though salvation includes forgiveness. In, our, in my tradition, sometimes when people talked about being saved, all they meant was, I'm forgiven of my sins. But that's really not the synonym for salvation or being saved. The synonym would be the word delivered. When you say you're saved, you're saying, I've been delivered. Now, part of that deliverance, if you want to say it's, well, it means I'm forgiven of my sins. That's a true statement. But the word deliverance is a much better synonym for the word saved than simply, I'm forgiven. So what are you delivered from if you are saved? Verse 5 says, even when we were dead 
in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So you've got the same words. You've got this deadness. You've got this idea of being saved, delivered. You're delivered from death. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, Adam trespassed against God. They died in that moment. Not physically, spiritually. Their relationship with God had now been so altered, they no longer walked in this perfect fellowship with the God who had made them. They had spiritually died. Their life was altered forever apart from the grace of God. That is spiritual death. Paul says, we were dead, but we've been delivered from that death because by grace... We have been delivered. We have been saved. So salvation is deliverance from death. It's deliverance from the penalty of sin. Paul writes in Romans, the wages of sin is death. It's death. And the most important, the most serious death is this alienation between yourself as creature and God as creator. There's a separation that takes place that only God can bridge. Only God can solve. Salvation is deliverance from death, but it's more than that. Or there's in addition to that, salvation is also deliverance from the way we once lived. So it's not only deliverance. Oh, you know, I should have backed up because I forgot. I highlighted these words, two words, have been. We have been saved. It's, it's past. If you're a Christian, you're not spiritually dead. You're spiritually alive. You've been raised with Christ. You're made alive with Him. You have a relationship with God. You can call Him Father because you're alive in Christ. You have been delivered. It's not one day you will be. You have it now if you've been adopted by Christ's person and blood into His family. So that's the have been. Now, secondly, salvation is also deliverance from the way we once lived. Verse 1 says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You used to live that way. So your condition was spiritually dead, but as you're living out your existence on this earth, as you're living out your life, you are a slave to sin. You're imprisoned to sin. You're chained by your sin. You can't break the shackles of your sin. So Paul describes it as you are following the course of the world. You are... Ruled by your own passions, your own desires. Now, those desires may look different. Somebody's passionate desire is to look righteous. Somebody else's passionate desire is to live out their fleshly lusts. And the last place that they would ever want to go is to gather with a church. But both are fleshly passions. Both are in opposition to God. Whether it's this righteousness that you think you can achieve on your own, or whether it's this hedonic hedonistic lifestyle where you want nothing to do with the Bible or, or a God who made anything. Paul also talks about you were energized by the prince of the power of the air. You were ruled by Satan himself. All of that is this way in which we once walked because we were dead. But this salvation delivers us from the way we once lived. It's the power of sin. The power of sin has been broken in a Christian's life. I am no longer a slave to sin. It doesn't mean I don't sin, but I don't have to sin. I'm not a slave to sin. I'm not imprisoned by my sin. I'm not identified by my sin. I'm a new person in Christ. 
I belong to him. I'm a, I'm a son adopted into the family of God. That's who I am. I'm not a slave to sin. So I've been delivered from the power of sin. This is the idea of I'm being saved. I'm being sanctified. Sanctified means I'm being made holy. So in one sense, I have been saved. In another sense, I'm being saved. I'm, I'm realizing what it means that sin is no longer my master. I'm realizing what it means that there are no shackles on my hands and on my feet. I've been set free. I'm free in Christ. I'm free to walk in newness of life. I'm free from that power. I'm free to walk out of step with the world. I'm not energized by Satan. I'm not ruled by my passions. I've been given new affections in Christ. So salvation is also deliverance from the way we once lived. That is the power of sin. Salvation is also deliverance from the presence of sin. In the Bible, this is called glorification. We'll receive glorified bodies. And here, because we will never receive glorified bodies until the last resurrection... Here, it's the idea of, I will be saved. There will come a day where all those who are in Christ, when Christ comes back in power and glory, they will be changed in an instant, and their bodies will be raised in this, in this new sense where they will be incapable of sinning. There is no presence of sin. Right now, I'm not a slave to sin. I'm not ruled by sin. That's not my master, but it's there. It's there. It's there in you and it's there in me. But one day, even the very presence of sin will be removed, taken away forever and forevermore. So if you put all three of those ideas together, what you have is this. Salvation is deliverance from the penalty of sin. That is, when the Bible mostly says, you have been saved. It's deliverance from the power of sin. I'm being saved. And it's deliverance from the presence of sin. I will be saved. All three of those things are true. If you're a Christian and you're saying, I'm saved, that's what you're declaring as your flag. That's where your stake is. Those things are increasingly known and realized in my life because it depends on God and what he's done. The cause of salvation is grace. The cause of this deliverance, the cause of this being saved from the penalty and the power and the presence. At the root of it all is the grace of God. So grace. By grace you have been saved. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Tim Keller, in his sermon, the excerpt I played several weeks ago, he made the point of that's without any causes found in me. So the moment I say, yes, I believe I'm saved by grace because I, as soon as I have introduced that because I, I've said it's not by grace. Because God's grace, there is no because I did anything. It's because God, in his great love and being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. That's the because. If the because is because I did something, I've just eliminated grace from the equation. Another definition of grace was one I shared with you back when we were in chapter 1. It's from the Life Application Bible Commentary. It reads like this. God doing for us that which we do not deserve and could not do for ourselves. God doing for us that which we do not deserve and could not do for ourselves. And that is terrific news. That is terrific news. Because it's not God says, look... I mean, you are a train wreck of a person. 
You are walking according to the course of this world. You're ruled by your passions. You're energized by Satan. Show forth a little effort, and I will make sure you get into the kingdom of heaven. If God says, look, you've got you've to show some effort on your part, and I will do something to save you, that's not good news if you're dead in your trespasses and sin. It's not good news if you're a slave to sin. It's very good news if God says, I can make you alive, and I can change your affections. I can make all things new. I can make you into a new creation. Charles Spurgeon preaches a sermon on this as well, and I didn't put this on the screen, but he says this. This prevents despair, which might arise in any heart on account of some egregious sin. Undeserved mercy can pardon one sin as well as another. God's undeserved mercy can pardon any sin. So that's good news. So that whatever background you came from, whatever background I came from, whatever stage I am in life, God's grace, His mercy can pardon that sin because it's not dependent on me. It's, it's nothing I deserve, and it's nothing I can contribute to. And that's good news, because that means God can save. The means of salvation is faith. So the source is grace, but the means, the way it's appropriated, the way that God's grace is made alive or real in an individual's life is what he says it's through faith. By grace, through faith. Now, faith, there's also a lot of confusion about, so let's talk about some of the misconceptions of what faith is when we're talking about faith. Faith, number one, is not a feeling. And this means different individuals, everybody, if you've talked with people, there are, you've probably had some sort of a conversation along these lines where somebody shows uh, no real interest in what Bible doctrine is or what we've been handed down from one generation to the next generation by faithful men and women of God, what we've been entrusted with the gospel and these, these wonderful truths that the church has celebrated for centuries of time, and people, some people have no real interest seemingly in gathering with the church and, and, and doing things that identify as a Christian, but they feel like everything's okay. Don't worry about me, I feel like everything's fine. Or, or I have peace. I've had people uh, that I've spoken with over the years that because of a situation or, or maybe uh, what seems to be uh, an egregious sin and they claim to be a Christian and I want to talk about that, they'll be like, don't worry, I've got peace. I've prayed about it, I have peace. What I'm doing is right. It's right because I have peace. Faith is not peace. We can give ourselves peace and say peace, peace when there is no peace. It's not just because you feel right about it. It's not because you have prayed about it and you have peace if God's word speaks against it. So faith is not a feeling. Secondly, faith is not a blind leap. A lot of people have this idea that faith is, is if you think about it, it's not faith. Faith is not thinking. It's checking your brains at the door and you just do something. And that the opposite of faith is, is knowledge or the opposite of faith are facts. That's hardly the case. Warren Wearsby taught me, uh, I heard him say this in person, that faith is a most reasonable thing, but there's enough left out so as to still require faith. Faith doesn't mean all your questions are answered, 
But it is most reasonable to believe our world was created by God. That is far easier to believe, far more reasonable than to think all of this came by random circumstance and chance without any intelligent design at all. Faith is reasonable, but God will not answer all your questions so that it doesn't still require trust. It doesn't still require faith. The third thing is probably the worst error of all because it's an error not only expressed in the world and by culture, unfortunately, it's expressed by Christians and in churches commonly all the time. The third error Faith is not personal confidence or optimism in a certain outcome. Now, faith is confidence in what God has said. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the way it is commonly used by people all the time is a, fa- a person of faith is somebody that has this terrific confidence that things are going to work out. That, thing, that a certain event that they want to take place is going to work out. I have faith. I'm optimistic. I believe that God is going to do this. He's going to open that door. This is going to work out because I have this confidence. I have faith. You've got to believe. But if God hasn't said it, it's not faith. It's presumption. It's presumption. So faith is not just this optimistic confidence that things will work out like you want them to. Faith is something much different from that. Here's what faith is. Faith is, number one, knowledge of what God has revealed. Faith is finding out in Scripture what God has said to be so, and that's where you, that's where you camp. That's, where you, that's what you depend on. We've got to build on this. This is what we teach in Good News Club on some level. Faith starts with knowledge. If God doesn't reveal things about himself... All of our confidence, all of our good feelings, all of our optimism is dead. And it goes nowhere. It has to start with God revealing something about himself, something about us, something about the gospel. So faith, number one, is knowledge of what God has revealed. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How will they hear unless somebody's sent? You've got to have God's word to know what God has said. Secondly, faith is affirmation or agreement with what God has said. God has said it. I'm agreeing with it. I'm affirming that. Yes, I think that's true. I think that's right. Uh, And then the third step is faith is trust and confidence in God's person, in the power of God, and in what God has said in his promises. Uh, If you want to liken this in a in a much lesser sense. I mean, you've got Alex and Eve getting married here in, in less than a week now. But in a sense, that's how a marriage starts off. It starts off with a certain relationship where you learn to know something about that person. It starts with knowledge. You don't just, well, I don't think most people just walk up to somebody on the street and propose and get married unless they're in Las Vegas and they've been drinking and things like that. But for the most part, it starts with you learn something about the person, you get to know them, and then you affirm, that's what I'm looking for. That's, those are the traits and the characteristics and the qualities that I'm looking for in somebody that I would like to marry. So you learn something, you affirm, yes. And then you put your trust and confidence when they stand up on a stage and they pledge their vows to one another before God and these witnesses. 
In a much greater sense, that's what faith in God is. It's God revealing something. We affirm, yes, that's true. We don't make it true. We don't make it true. We affirm that it's true. We recognize it as truth. And then we put our trust and confidence in who God is, his, his, uh, the promises that he's made, and his power to deliver. Romans chapter 4 makes that very explicit in God's promises to Abraham. Abraham believed God, and he believed in God's power to perform what God had promised him that he would do. Another really good example or illustration of faith is in the book of Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. That's a great illustration of faith. It doesn't capture every aspect, but it captures a lot. This idea of trusting, not leaning on your own understanding, acknowledging him, not being wise in your own eyes, fearing the Lord, turning away from evil. That's faith. That's knowledge put to good work, leaning on that, depending on that, having confidence in that. That's biblical faith. This is uh, Richard Lenski. He's a Lutheran. He, I've got his years on there, 1864 to 1936. He was a theologian. He was a, a pastor, a Lutheran pastor. He spent, I think, most of his life pastoring a church in Ohio, uh, he did, wrote a number of books, a set of commentaries, but he's Lutheran in his theology. And what I mean by that, which I'll explain in just a moment, is Lenski's a terrific guy. It's, he's, his set of commentaries is about as good as any set I have. I don't agree with any one set. I don't agree with any one person. I've said that in the past. I don't agree with myself because I can go back and look at stuff that I used to say or write and I think I was wrong then. I think I'm wrong now. I just don't know where I'm wrong. I don't knowingly teach what's wrong. But I know I haven't arrived. I'm not, the, I'm not a finished product. So I'm still a work in progress. So Lenski's not perfect, but he's good. He's really good. And Lenski, on this idea of being, uh, by grace you've been saved through faith, he's so good on this point out of, the number of commentaries that I'm checking when I get ready for a Sunday morning, his quote, uh, or what he wrote originally, is quoted by, I'd say, half of them. It's incredible how many other commentators are quoting what Lenski said on this point. Now, I say that to let you know, he's going to sound very Reformed. And the odd thing is, Lutheran theology is not the same as Reformed theology. There's differences. Both are within the camp of God when you believe you're saved by grace through faith. But it's not reform. In other words, he's not a Calvinist. He's a Lutheran. Before he's, a, he's a Christian first. He's a Christian. It's only Christians in heaven. There's no Baptists, Presbyterians, Calvinists, Arminians. Only Christians are in heaven. The only people in heaven are those who have been saved by the grace of God through faith. That's all there are. Now, down here, we have distinctions. We have persuasions. We have convictions. Some right, some wrong, we're all over the board, and we're doing the best we can, but at the end of the day, it's only Christians saved by grace through faith that are in heaven. So, James White is a good Reformed Baptist, he runs a ministry called Alpha Omega, he's not a huge fan of Lenski, and and he doesn't quote what Lenski says about Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, in fact, what 
what uh, James White says from uh, what Lenski writes in Romans. He writes, Lutheran scholar Richard Lenski wrote a series of New Testament commentaries that are still in circulation today. His strongly anti-reformed stance comes through clearly in his writings. His, his strongly anti-reformed stance comes through clearly in his writings. Now, because different people love James White and not Richard Linsky, I find myself every once every couple of years, I'm defending Linsky to a bunch of reformed people because they're so down on Linsky. I don't think they've read Linsky. I think they know what James White says about Linsky. And he's strongly anti-reformed, and he's not good. He's not in our camp. He, he doesn't faithfully represent the gospel. I think he does. Not perfectly. Just like James White doesn't perfectly reflect the gospel. Just like I don't perfectly reflect the gospel. But here's what Richard Lenski says about verse 8. It sounds reformed to me. He would say it's Lutheran, I guess. But I think it just represents what Paul's writing Lenski says, faith is not something that we on our part produce and furnish toward our salvation, but is produced in our hearts by God to accomplish his purpose in us. One often meets careless statements such as, grace is God's part, faith ours. And that's what all, all my, so many of my commentaries quote this idea. Lenski said, we often meet with a careless statement such as grace is God's part, faith is our part. You put those two parts together and you've got salvation. Lenski says that could hardly be the case. He explains himself. Lenski writes, Now the simple fact is that even in human relations, faith and confidence are produced in us by others, by what they are and what they do. We never produce it ourselves. Even deceivers know that they must cunningly make their deceptions of such a nature that they may appear true and grand, and that they may thus produce faith in those whom they wish to deceive. There is no self-produced faith. Faith is wrought in us. Saving faith is wrought by the saving grace of God. Salvation is received by means of faith. That's good doctrine. I don't care where, what spectrum you're at. You're saved by grace through faith. And this faith is wrought in you by God, by His grace. He makes, He creates affections and desires that are not part of your deadness. They're part of His aliveness. And you believe. By grace you've been saved through faith. Paul wants to make several clarifications. Clarification number one, this is not your own doing it is the gift of God. When Paul says this, what does the this refer to? It's kind of easy to answer this. I go with what virtually every Bible scholar and commentator that I check would say. The this does not exclusively refer to the faith. The this does not exclusively refer back to the word faith. It refers to that entire statement. And there's grammatical reasons why it has to be the case. In other words, when Paul says, this is not of your own doing, he's saying, look, that grace is the gift of God. The fact that you are saved, that's the gift of God. You're saved by faith, you know what? That's the gift of God. The entire statement is the gift of God to you. It's not of yourselves. 
It's not of yourselves. That's clarification number one. Second clarification, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, you might, I might want to think, well, wait a second. I wouldn't go boasting in heaven. I wouldn't go around and say, look at this dude. Look at who made it up on Main Street or whatever street I want to think. You know. if, but the, the problem is, if my work has anything to do with it, I could boast, even if I don't. I could, if I had a part to play. But Paul says, look, forget about your works. It's not a result of works. Nobody's going to be doing any boasting. Those references I don't have time for, but they're all excellent references. Some of the references talk about, look, if it's by grace, it's not by works. If it's by works, it's not by grace. There's no mixture. You can't combine it. The moment you've combined grace with anything on our side of the equation, you've just eliminated grace. It, you just can't do it. And then I think one of the Corinthians passages, I may be mixing it up, it says, what do you have that you didn't receive? You know, any time, whatever ability you have, your ability to, whether it's to, to think a certain way, whether it's some certain talent or ability, on some level, I always come back to, what do I have that I didn't receive? The only reason why I can do anything at all is because it's by the mercy and the grace and provision of God. Because if God wanted to remove it, it could be removed just like that. It doesn't mean we don't develop our gifts and abilities. God expects that once he's given them. But it's only ours by his grace. Let's build on this. In other words, Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. In response to, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Spurgeon says, if there is to be in our celestial garment but one stitch of our own making, we are all of us lost. If I provide one stitch, like you get to do the last stitch or the first stitch or some stitch in the middle. If I provide a stitch, the garment's lost, the garment's spoiled. So that's from a good Baptist. Let's go back to the good Lutheran. Richard Lenski puts it this way. If we were in any degree saved by ourselves, this could be possible only by some work or works we ourselves have done. But among all our works done before our quickening, that is our being made alive, among all our works done before our quickening, there was not one in which God could find pleasure, not one that could aid toward our salvation. All were wide off the mark. All were so damnable that it took infinite grace to save us. I think Spurgeon and Alensky would get along quite nicely on this point. They're saved by grace through faith. Lenski goes on to say, when we consider what it costs God to save us by his grace through faith, namely the sacrifice of his son on the cross, it should be plain why he wants all human boasting excluded. But there is more, namely the fact that God alone saved us, that we contributed absolutely nothing that God is truth and could not possibly allow anyone by boasting to deny even in part what God alone saved part uh, by boasting to deny even in part that God alone saved him. 
Now, nothing so militates against God's grace and what it does in saving us as the boasting of self-righteousness, the falsehood of Pelagianism, and of synergism. To know what grace is and to have saving faith in that grace is to the glory only is to glory only in the Lord. 1 Corinthians, let the one who glories glory in this, what God has done in Christ. He's my righteousness. He's my salvation. He's my forgiveness. He's my glory. It's all in Christ. It's all my identification with him. Ephesians has made that abundantly clear. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. You're seated with Christ. You're raised with Christ. You're ruling with Christ. It's always in Christ. Because if Christ isn't in the equation... We're not doing any of those things. So Lenski agrees nicely with Luther on that point as well, or uh, Spurgeon. Um, so here's what a right response looks like to these things. I've got two responses. One is, one is, I'm not sure I want to see. Okay, Alexander McLaren. I want to make sure I didn't show you the quote yet. This is Andrew McLaren when he's on his deathbed. Um, there was another pastor by the name of Mr. Gustart. They were both ministers in Edinburgh, Scotland. And uh, Mr. Gustart paid him a visit when McLaren was on his deathbed. And I guess he didn't understand uh, exactly the circumstances. And he asked Alexander McLaren, he says, What are you doing, brother? Because he was obviously doing something. I don't know if he was muttering. I, don't know. I wasn't there. But he's like, what are you doing, brother? And here's Alexander McLaren's response on his deathbed. What are you doing? His answer was, I'll tell you what I'm doing, brother. I'm gathering together all my prayers, all my sermons, all my good deeds, all my evil deeds. And I'm going to throw them all overboard and swim to glory in the plank of free grace. That's what I want to do on my deathbed. You know what? I don't, want, I don't want to be recounting all the things that I think I've done, good, bad, indifferent. I don't want others to be recounting that on my behalf. I'm, I plan on going into glory on the plank of free grace through faith. That's a great response to what Paul writes. I've got one more great response. This is John Bunyan. He lived from 1628 to 1688. So uh, the United... There was no United States. We were a colony of uh, Britain at that point. Uh, I sometimes in my mind, that, and maybe you don't have this problem, but sometimes I get in my mind John Bunyan mixed up with John Newton. John Newton came about 40 years after. John Newton lived uh, to see America birth a nation. So John Newton is the one, he's the famous slave trader who wound up being converted, wound up writing wonderful uh, books and pamphlets and articles about the grace of God. So that's a, that's a very well-known story. John Bunyan is also well-known. He's best known for writing Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan wrote that. He'd, he'd been imprisoned because he preached the gospel. But let me tell you a little bit more about John Bunyan. John Bunyan was uh, born an unbeliever, uh, lived a pretty rough lifestyle. He was, he's referred to, I think... <clears throat> In what I read, he's referred to as um, a once blaspheming tinker. And a tinker in his day is somebody who, who uh, he's an itinerant, he's a traveling fix-it kind of a guy. He's fixing utensils and he's probably peddling his wares as well. But he was, uh, he was, that was his profession, he was a tinker. He married when he was 21 years old. And his wife brought two religious books into the marriage, which books I imagine in their day were pretty rare. She brought in two religious books. He began reading those religious books and he realized really kind of what a wretch he was. 
uh, that he really was kind of a blasphemer. And so he set about cleaning up his life. He needed better habits. Uh, He didn't want to be that awful blasphemer. And so he's cleaning things up. But as he's peddling his wares, as he's tinkering, traveling, however that works exactly, he heard some, some poor women talking about this inner conversion experience, this inner change. And he realized he didn't have it. And he realized, you know, I'm maybe not the outwardly the blasphemer I used to be, but what they're talking about is something I don't have. He was missing it. He knew something was wrong. Something was off. So he was tormented by his guilt, which you can understand if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, how Pilgrim is burdened by his guilt. He's uh, torn apart by his guilt. He wound up writing another very famous book. It's of his own conversion called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. That book starts off, the kind of the title page starts off with this. <clears throat> a brief and faithful relation of the exceeding mercy of God in Christ to his poor servant, John Bunyan. Namely, in taking him out of the dunghill and converting him to the faith of his blessed son, Jesus Christ. That's how he, he starts off, uh, grace abounding to the chief of sinners. It's a It's not a short book. It's a fairly long process where he talks about God dealing with him and his guilt and what it took for him to be delivered. I'm going to show you two short passages from uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. The first is just this this curious observation he had about as he's going through life with this burden and so many people seem not to be burdened. Again, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, that sounds like a familiar theme, because in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is burdened by something, and other people are like, I don't see the burden. You don't have a burden. Like, just enjoy life. Uh, Just pursue these different interests. And Christian can't. He's obsessed with his burden, with his guilt. So John Bunyan writes this. While I was thus afflicted with the fears of my own damnation, there were two things that would make me wonder. The one was when I saw old people hunting after the things of this life as if they should live here always. The other was when I found professors much distressed and cast down when they met with outward losses as of a husband, wife, child, which is an amazing statement because I don't think the Bible teaches that we should not mourn the loss of a spouse Uh, whether it's a wife, a child, or whoever the case may be. But I I do remember Dr. Greer saying, you know, he'd been married 50-some years, and in one of his lectures, he talks about, you know, he talked about how much Shirley meant to him. That was his wife. And he talked about he met her his second year, or his first year of school. I can't remember which it was. He wanted to go to a, um, he was a very academic person, but his parents wanted him to go to a Bible college. So he went the first year just to satisfy them. He's like, I'm telling Greer's story. He's like, if you ask me why I went back the second year, I'll tell you, it's Shirley. He went back for the girl. He's like, and he kind of plays off, Shirley, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. How much Shirley meant to him and how she was his partner in all of life and all of ministry. But he said, you know what? If the Lord were to take Shirley away, I want you to know my life would still have meaning and purpose. Because that doesn't come from any one person, however important they may be, however special they may be. And it doesn't mean they're not important or special. But purpose comes from God. It comes from forgiveness in Christ. It comes from being made alive. So he doesn't understand old people that act 
hunting after the things of this life as if they're always going to be here. He doesn't understand why people are distressed and cast down. Uh, Lord, thought I, what ado is there here about such little things as these? What's seeking after carnal things by some? And what grief in others for the loss of them? The meaning of life is not found under the sun. It's not found apart from God in Christ. And then as he's wrestling, going through life with this burden of guilt, there's one instance that stood out to me as a conversion experience. It looks like this. But one day as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest yet all was not right, suddenly the sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought withal, I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There I say as my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He wants my righteousness, for that was just before Him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my affliction and irons. My temptations also fled away. So that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. That's what I want to do on my deathbed too. I want to say my righteousness is already there. I'm not bringing my righteousness before God's throne. It's already standing before God's throne. And that's my basis for entering into the kingdom of heaven. What glorious tributes to saved by grace through faith. Alexander McLaren and John Newton. And with these things, we'll observe the Lord's Supper. By grace, you've been saved through faith. If in your heart you feel that welling up within you, this this tremendous joy that your righteousness is already there, that all of your hope is in Christ, what a celebration we have when we take the bread knowing that that's a representing his body, and we take the cup knowing it represents his shedding.